When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, I am Sebastian Teotrio. And I'm Alex Hollingsworth. Welcome to The Hidden Curriculum. A podcast where we talk about all the stuff you didn't learn in graduate school. Hey, everybody. Uh, we're very excited to bring you another episode today. Sebastian, I would like to know, what's your favorite album? The consistent album that I always go back to as like a full album set is Shakira MTV Unplugged, which is the last album before Shakira came to the US and became more, before she became blonde, essentially. And that, that, that Shakira, that pre-blonde Shakira was very, I think, different than post-blonde Shakira, post Malone. Um, and I love that album because that was so good. It's so soulful. It's so fun. So that's- so You're, you're a Shakira albums. hipster. I'm a Shakira hipster. That's right. Okay, that's good. I like it. <laughs> what about you, Alex? Mine is probably Joshua Tree, although my wife points out uh, correctly that's really just like the first six or so songs of Joshua Tree. The rest is fine. But I, I seem to like uh, switch the album or something after that. Uh, okay. But but I, I like that album a lot. I put it on. Uh, 10, Pearl Jam 10, I listen to a lot. Mm. So mm. Nice, nice. Good but you, Mark? It's such a hard question for me to answer. I mean, I've been playing guitar for almost 30 years at this point oh wow i can i can say that there is a there's probably a favorite album for every season literal season of my life and i would be hard-pressed to pick just one but if i had to pick just one i would say my first favorite album was when i when i discovered um guitar music heavy metal music when i was in high school and that's going to tell your listeners how old Mm -hmm. i am but and justice for all by metallica had just come out Oh wow! And for me, it remains a very good album to this day. I know people kind of always say, "Well, the, you can't hear the bass and anything." I did not care about that when I was fourteen. Right. It's just a wonderful metal album. It's progressive. It's got everything that a teenager who's learning guitar would want to have. Nice. That's awesome. I just noticed that you have like three guitars on the background right there. You're That's seeing awesome. a selected sample. <laughs> There's like five, six more in a different rack next door. Maybe if we're lucky, Mark will play Harvester of Sorrow for Ooh, us later. I like album, that. So. <laughs> and are I you could... in a band, by the way? Not currently, but I've been in, in bands over the years. Uh, with economists or non-economists? Non-economists. I was in a band with teachers at some point with high school teachers. That was a lot of fun. But no, not currently in a band. As you may have guessed, our special guest today is Mark Bellamar. Mark is a Northrop professor at the Department of Applied Economics at the University of Minnesota, redirects the Center for International Food and Agricultural Policy. His research lies at the intersection of agricultural economics, food policy, and international development. Mark is a new author, not a first-time author of anything, but a first-time author of a book called Doing Economics. Uh, We are really excited to discuss your book and just talk with you in general today. Uh, Mark, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for asking. Awesome. Thank you. And you've already shared a number of fun facts, but uh, I would like to know, is there any other fun (laughs) fact that you want to share with our guests? And it could be an expansion of of your Mm. band. 
as well. Yeah, I, well, it's a related fun fact. So, in you know, what your listeners don't know is that you know you guys kind of send the the guests some of the questions you're going to ask, and you're like, well, are you going to share a fun fact, or what fun fact mm-hmm. can you share? And I was thinking about that, and I'm an economist because I'm a failed musician. So I, <laughs> when uh, I wanted to do music school, Montreal has a very very good jazz program. I took the audition. I didn't know what I was doing. I was a you know rock metal player. I hadn't received formal jazz training. And so I didn't make it. And so I had to go to plan B, which was, well, you know, go to college to study something that's not music. <laughs> and so the reason why I'm here really is because I did not make it in jazz school. So funny. And there's a related anecdote to that. We have this auditorium on campus called Northrop Auditorium. So mm. you mentioned that I'm Northrop professor. That was the first president of the university, Cyrus Northrop. And there's this important building named after him. And I saw a poster there of a jazz guitar player from Montreal who was going to come to give a concert. And that was the guy who auditioned me. Um, oh, wow. And when I didn't make it the audition, he was a, he was a teacher at that college at that time. Mm. And, you know, he's, he's not a super rock star. You can actually find his email. And so I, I wrote him a note <laughs> and I said, hey, man, you know, uh, you're not going to remember me. But so I told him the whole thing. And I'm like, well, I became an economist and here I am. So if you want to go, we should go for coffee when you're in town for your concert. And he wrote back and he said, you mean you want to thank me for like actually giving you a chance to have a chance to make a real living and not like live from gig to gig and contract (laughs) to contract. And he's actually making a very good living as far as I can tell. He, Some of the music he wrote for film has been Grammy nominated if he didn't win a Grammy. But I appreciated the touch of humor. Wow, that's so interesting. That's that's such a good story. Like, and it actually it feels really personal to me because I'm I'm dissimilar, but I did not get into film school, at least when I first tried it. And so I'm a film school reject turned economist. But I still tell people that I'm like doing very similar things, which is telling stories with data. Although people don't like it when I say that I'm telling stories and I'm an economist. But that's different. I think that's true of a lot of us, right? Because I remember when I was in grad school, I was lucky enough to to take a class with Kaushik Basu while he was at Cornell, right? So he wasn't chief economist at the World Bank. He wasn't deputy minister in India Mm -hmm. at the time. Mm-hmm. And and Kaushik would have told you the same thing. I think he has. Uh, he I think he feels like he's a failed playwright, and and, and oh, wow. that's why he became an economist. You guys are way more interesting than most <laughs> economists I talk to. So I, I don't know if that's like uh, like I mean cre- selection bias, right? The selection bias of the stories, yeah. the type of but, economists that are in a podcast talking about this stuff too, right? Um, and also, Mark was sharing another fun fact is that Mark parle français, notre invité parle français, oui? Oui, je parle français, le français, ma langue maternelle. Ah, excellent. Okay, that's, I'll stop right this there. This is bringing back my grade school Montessori <laughs> French that I had to take for many years. Alex, are we going to do a podcast in another language one day or not? We can do a podcast in another language, but I will have to heavily rely on Google Translate. Unless you want to <laughs> speak some Latin. Puella est pulcra. Um, <laughs> Before we dive into today's topic, let's talk a little bit about your work. Is there anything you'd like to promote that you've been working on that could be published, a working paper, sort of in, in any state? Yeah, good question. So I've got this this really cool new working paper. It's, I mean, I say it's new. It's it's what I'm working on currently. Right. Um, and it's uh, if you have read Pearl's The Book of Why, if you've read anything by Judea Pearl, yeah. uh, you most almost really have heard about his front door criterion, which is um, this method he has kind of developed to identify treatment effects using observational data. And economists have been kind of resistant and reticent to using the front door criterion, but I have this uh, working paper with Jeff Bloom and Noah Wexler where we find 
a credible application of Trondor mm -hmm. criterion, because that's where the resistance mainly stems from. I think Guido Imbens in one of his papers says, you know, Trondor criterion sounds great in practice, in, in theory, but show me an application. And mm -hmm. we have an application that we think actually holds water. That's really cool. Could you give just like the briefest overview of what that is and then maybe what the application is? Yeah. So the front door criterion exploits uh, mediation in a way. So you have, you know, you have to have, you have to be able to take an endogenous relationship that you think is causal and decompose it into two identified relationships. In other words, you have to have a mediator variable on the causal path from treatment to outcome that is not affected by your unobserved confounders that cause both the treatment and the outcome. And what we have found here, and this was completely fortuitous because I had Noah Wexler as a, as a student in my first year econometrics class, and he showed up to office hours one day and said, oh, I, got, I need help with this problem I'm working on. And he happened to be interested in Lyft and Uber, and he had found this publicly available data set of uh -huh. Lyft and Uber transactions in Chicago and um, it turns out that when you uh, when you open your app, you're told, you know, this is the price you're going to pay. You're also given the option to to sh to share your ride with somebody else, right? And if you and that's at a lower price. So of course, the decision to um, to do that is endogenous, right? But we were interested in what is the effect of choosing to share a ride on tipping. So tippings are outcome variable. Mm -hmm. Uh, and the decision to share, there, there is kind of this conventional wisdom among Lyft drivers that shared rides lead to lower tips, mm. right? And what we do here is we exploit the fact that the, the actually sharing, once you have decided to authorize a shared ride, is almost a lottery if you condition on time and place fixed effects. Because it's not clear that there's going to be some other person going from Midway to mm -hmm. Union Station at the same time as you are going. And so... You elect to share, you choose a, a lower price if you get, and then, you know, the algo will decide, well, do you get to share because is there somebody else who wants to do that at the same time? Um, and what we find is that the, the lower kind of the, this partial correlation between lower tips and sharing authorized rides is almost due entirely to selection and very mm. little to treatment. Hmm. What is the difference between that and the concept of IV? So an IV is, it's kind of, see, try to picture a DAG in your mind, right? And yeah. I know that economists are, have been reticent to using those two. Mm -hmm. um, the IV comes before the treatment, right? And the causal setup. In the traditional late setup, I right? See, the I IV see, comes before treatment, the treatment comes in the middle, and then the outcome comes after. This is the mediator variable. It's between the treatment and the outcome. And we actually have a section in the paper where... We answered that very question. Appendix one says, well, you might think this could work as an IV, and then we show why mm -hmm. it doesn't work as an IV. Oh, interesting. Okay. Well, I'm excited to read that paper because I've been following the discussions and I understand 10% of what's going on sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I, I love this kind of stuff because it's like, uh, there's a whole series of things that I didn't learn in grad school that are like em empirical techniques. DAGs is firmly in that camp. And just anything that ends, adds a little bit of understanding to that, I, am, uh, I latch on to. So this, this sounds great. So there is a very simple DAG in the paper. And we, we actually give a footnote in there that says, you may not be familiar with DAGs. This is how you read them. Mm. Uh, I might be able to save you a couple hours there, Alex. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate this that. Is, this is going to be a really good paper too. Because like, like, I think applications are super important when you're, at least for me, when you're trying to learn some new methodology and like applications that work and answer questions. It's a uh, beautiful. So yeah. And as we exciting. talked about earlier, I think Sebastian and I are both pretty visual. So like the idea of this is uh, 
yeah. very appealing to me. Oh, yeah. I'm the same. I mean, as we were talking about before we started recording, Sebastian, you were saying the way I learned something is I take it to data and I estimate it myself with real yep. real data instead of reading the, mm-hmm. you know, the paper by Alwyn Young, for instance, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I... I was the same, I am the same empirically, but I was also the same when it came to theory courses where, you know, we would have instructors say, oh, well, you know, the theorem is this, or the proposition Mm -hmm. is that. And I would always kind of try to come up with a very specific example. And Mm -hmm. I'm one who goes from the specific to the general instead of, I I was never one of those geniuses. I was never a genius to begin with, but I was never (laughs) one of those people who could go from the general statement and say, ah, yes, I see this. This is really yeah. obvious. Like, yeah, 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 totally, totally. No, I'm, I'm definitely there. Give me the thing with my hands. Let me play with it. And that's how <laughs> I will learn to do things. And that's why, I mean, to be honest, it's funny because when this whole new DD literature came out, um, and I know a lot of the authors of the literature, some, some of them very well, and I know that those authors were getting a ton of questions by a ton of different people. And I was like, to be honest, if I were you, I would just design a homework assignment with a data set and a set of questions and be like, actually go through this. And instead of like reading the paper and stuff like that, because that homework data set is actually going to help a lot of people be like, oh, this is the issue. And this is how it's similar to my data, in my opinion, of course. Now all the grad students are going to dislike you, Sebastian, because you just made a new problem set for them. Yeah, but, <laughs> but this is the problem set I want to, I, like, I want to do this problem set. I'm yeah. excited about it. <laughs> All right. So before we get into the topic of the day, uh, a popular segment that we have is talking about workflow. Um, You're a very productive person. I've been following your work for a while. As as I've learned uh, before the podcast in following your work, I've been mispronouncing your last name for a while. (laughs) But, uh, you know, clearly you've done a lot. And so we would just love any tips uh, that you think contribute to your workflow or maybe just what what is your workflow? Uh, How do you manage so many things? Yeah. Again, that's something that that I knew we were going to discuss, and I'm not sure that I have a single answer to give to that other than be flexible, because mm-hmm. I used to have a workflow when I started out, and it was just me and my wife, and then I had a different workflow once we had our first dog, and then a different <laughs> workflow when we got our second dog, and the biggest kind of upending of my workflow is when our daughter was born. Mm-hmm. Um, that really changes everything, so I would say my workflow when I started, it's probably the most interesting for you guys is what early career researchers, graduate mm-hmm. students. At that time, I worked all the time. Um, I would, you know, get up around six in the morning and I would sit at the dining room table with my computer and just do stuff that I wouldn't do any crazy heavy work, but I would do stuff like respond to email mm-hmm. and take care of the little stuff so that I could hit the ground running by the time I got to work. Um, mm-hmm. And I would, you know, work throughout the day. But it's hard to work throughout the day when you're in the office because, you know, colleagues want to come in and and talk to you and students want to talk to you. And, you know, we are social beings and therefore like we can't, some people can pull it off, but I could never Mm -hmm. pull off the, you know, go in, close the door and don't talk to anyone until five (laughs) o'clock. And so I would, the bulk of my work was not necessarily done in the office. Mm -hmm. uh, Or if I did work in the office, it'd be prepping slides for teaching or Mm -hmm. something light and not too difficult. And then I would do my real work after dinner, I would work from about you oh, know, wow. seven until nine thirty. That is no longer manageable now that I have, you know, my, my daughter is going to be six in November. Oh, and nice. so now it's catch as catch can, right? <laughs> and so she gets on the school bus at uh seven thirty ish nowadays. And you know, I I this year for the first 
time in my life I've managed to sustain an exercise program. And I try to do an hour of exercise every single day. And wow. that's the first thing. If I can't do it in the morning, usually it kind of falls by the wayside. Amazing. Um, and so that's my first thing. And then, then I sit down to work. Um, I set out to work. I sit down. <laughs> um, I, I'm always kind of surprised when people say set instead of sit. And I just did that. Um, <laughs> regional variations in accents, I think. Yeah. At any rate, so I, I set out to work once I'm done with that. And, but, and, but that's kind of a constrained work day, right? Because that means that by the time I sit down to work, it's probably nine o'clock and I have until 3.30 until the bus comes home and, and until, until the bus kind of arrives and she comes home. Mm-hmm. Uh, although she's at an age now where you can ask her like, look, you know, uh, I have to work a little bit between now and dinner. Do you mind reading a book or something? Mm-hmm. But I would say the biggest thing is to be flexible. Uh, and as with, you know, I think you've, you have to be able to um, front load a lot of your effort in this profession. So there's a lot right. of stuff, you know, we hear about consumption smoothing all the time. Effort cannot be smoothed as well as consumption, I think. Mm. And you have to put in all of your effort, not all of your effort, but the, the bulk of your effort early on mm-hmm. so that you get things like tenure, so that you get things like nice publications, grants, whatever is whatever you define as success. And then you can actually start writing your own ticket and have a more flexible mm. um, type of life. And you know, this, which is why I'm always kind of, you know, if it works for them, great. But I'm always kind of surprised when I see people say, oh, I don't work on weekends who are very young in their career. Cause I'm like, look, you know, later on, you're going to want to take Wednesday afternoon off to go and, you know, to go for a run or to go, to go hike or something. Now is the time to kind of do that effort that will allow you to do that later on. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, I just chose to do that, but it might not work for everyone. That's interesting you said that when you were talking about experience, that was kind of like the question I wanted to ask you if like now looking back and now that you have a lot of experience, if you, if, if you would do something similar to that, and it seems like the answer is yes, like you would put a lot of effort into working the first few years of the profession to, I don't know if the word is reaping the benefits later on, but like, uh, you know, I guess get to a steady state where you have built your um your career do, do you think that's a function of tenure specifically like or not necessarily it's a function tenure certainly is a game changer in the sense that you're a lot more secure in your profession mm. you uh can afford to take bigger risks right you can afford right. to work on things where um had you worked on that as as an assistant professor and it wouldn't have worked out then you would have been kind of like out a couple of years working on a project so imagine right the I think the scariest scenario is you work on on a single RCT mm. and you go and collect data. You you have this grant, you know, we have this funding and you're going to do this RCT. And then, um, and it's a true story of something that happened to one of my research projects. It didn't matter too much at the time, but there was a coup in the country where we worked. And so mm. we couldn't continue. Wow. But worst, right, is, is what really breaks my heart is people who had RCTs going on. And right. then COVID hit and you can't travel anymore. And yeah. all of your data collection efforts have now been turned into, can we call those people and ask them the same questions? And then mm-hmm. you get into, but one of the things that came to my mind as we were discussing about two minutes ago, I think grad school is kind of a microcosm of the macrocosm that is one's career. Mm-hmm. And in grad school, I think, you know, we front load so much of the effort. The first year in economics yeah. and related programs is intellectual boot camp, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's the way it's supposed to be because it gives you kind of a discipline mm. that you can then kind of keep with you 
and know when to apply it, not necessarily apply it 100% of the time. No one's that superhuman, uh, but at least know when to apply it kind of at the end of your grad school. So, I mean, certainly for me, the dissertation writing stage was a lot more leisurely than the first year, right? Mm -hmm. During my dissertation writing stage, it was, I mean, I can honestly say this was probably some of the best time of my life because that's awesome. Uh, you know, speaking of playing guitar, I played a lot of guitar then. <laughs> My wife would work. Uh, she worked at, as, a, as a waitress at, at Ithaca's number one French restaurant. There weren't that many <laughs> of them. Uh, but she would kind of leave at 3.30 and she'd be back at 1 a.m. And so in the meantime, I would just right. kind of work on my dissertation. So I, we'd go to bed late. You know, we'd watch these um, this was at a time when Netflix would send you DVDs in the mail. So we yeah. would watch a lot of DVDs in the mail. And then we'd go to bed at, you know, two or three up by 1030 or 11 oh, wow. uh, and play guitar, read fiction. And then when she went to work, I would work a whole lot. Nice. Uh, and this was kind of a great time because we had time for social activities. But can you imagine trying to do that if, in my first year where you have all these problem sets and when it's not micro, it's econometrics and it's not econometrics, it's math for economists. And when mm-hmm. it's not that, it's macro. Right? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Wow. I, I really, I like this framework that you presented quite a bit. And this is something that for me became really salient uh, as I got closer and closer to needing to submit my tenure packet. Like, so yes, there's this anxiety and you're like, how do I manage this anxiety? And like, one of the ways I will do that is I'll just like work on stuff. Like I'll be nervous, maybe working on it isn't the right way to do it, but I'll just like, that's the only thing I can do right now. But I did rationalize it to myself and I think it's correct. And it sort of fits with what you were saying that like the, like the return on like the marginal minute spent right now, the two years before I go up for tenure is much higher for my like long run career than it will be at this like very discreet point in two years in the future, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you get tenure, that same minute spent on the paper is going to have a much lower return. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's what I I use that to justify staying up super late every night working uh, to myself, at least when maybe that was just mostly to smooth anxiety, but I Mm. I don't know. I, I, I do. I guess like by revealed preference, I agree with your framework quite a bit. Now, one of the advices I'm giving to young professors is, well, it's not even advice. It's just a comment of like, I think that what's going to get you tenured is probably what you're working on your first, like minus one to two oh, first years. And, and I think- <laughs> I agree with you. It's terrifying. terrifying. And when I realized, yeah. I thought it was terrifying too, because I was like, oh, wait, well, I'm supposed to be doing the best thing now. Like now it's the best thing. And, but I think it's good. I don't, again, maybe it's bad for some people to hear, but I think it's for some other people good to send that, to sense that like, oh yeah, I need, like right now, it's what's going to help me get tenure, at least in the first institution, obviously you can get tenure a thousand times after. Um, so it's not like the last thing, but, um, but anyways, it, which is such a weird concept to me. Cause I'm like, I'm like, oh, the work that I was doing when I was a first year professor is the goals that I'm going to be evaluated as a fifth year professor. And I'm such a different person that I was like, then I think academically, like, I feel like now I can write better papers than I wrote back then, but still it's interesting to think about that. Uh, So today we want to talk about your book, Doing Economics and the the main lessons from this book. So let's start at the beginning and tell us a little bit about what drove you to write this book. Yeah, that's a very good question. And (laughs) and there are several answers to that question, which I think are all equally valid. Um, So over the years, I've been blogging. I started the blog in January 2011. 
Mm -hmm. uh, many people have read it because of the Metrics Monday series of posts, which uh, were all about what we were talking about earlier, right? Yeah. If you are someone who learns from seeing examples, I, I felt that was a great way to kind of teach people, well, how do you deal when you have, you know, a bunch of zeros and you want to take a log of it? How do you deal mm -hmm. with that, right? Mm -hmm. Inverse hyperbolic sign, by the way. Um, <laughs> and so um, I had accumulated a bunch of stuff on there that was kind of useful for early career researchers and, and graduate students and young professionals, um, but not quite enough to fill a book. But at some point I did, uh, I taught the second year paper seminar in our department for six years, I think. Mm. And it kind of gave me a good overview of the paper writing process and what are the stumbling blocks for students and what's the right order in which to write things. And so I wrote up this thing called How to Write Applied Papers in Economics. Mm -hmm. And um, and it turns out people liked it. <laughs> and, and then the pandemic hit. And I thought, um, I'm going to need something to keep my sanity that's not oh, the usual stuff that I do. I need something new like that's that's going to kind of like Mm -hmm. just be different and i'm extremely fortunate um that we that it was only for three months i think that we were uh my wife and i were both working half time and homeschooling the other half of the time because we were very fortunate to find a very good nanny that summer that the the, the first mm. summer of covid and she was wonderful in you know showing up on time and you know making sure that we could work and that's how i got to kind of writing this book i i at some point i realized wait a minute, this chapter, this, this paper that I have on how to write papers could be a chapter in a book that kind of tries to tell people who are not too sure how to do those things because they're not getting this knowledge from their grad school or, or mm -hmm. it's been a while and things have changed, um, how, to do, uh, how to do various other things like getting funding, how to advise and mentor students, how to navigate the peer review process, do professional service. And so I wrote it up into a, a book proposal and uh, some months later, MIT Press, you know, came back and said, yes, we'd love to have that, sent it out for review, iterated over a little bit. Um, but my whole contention in there is that I think what separates people from top programs and people from, you know, not top programs mm -hmm. is uh, at top programs, there's a lot of kind of hidden, there's not, there's a lot of hidden curriculum. There's a lot mm -hmm. of stuff you learn through that is not written down somewhere right? Mm -hmm. That you learn in a seminar room, for instance, and how to behave and things like how to ask questions, how to answer questions. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of interstitial knowledge that you're grabbing from conversations with your advisor when you're not really talking about, you know, when it's like, you know, it kind of happens just, it's yeah. what it's a bit of knowledge that's dropped here and there. And I've benefited a lot from that from my own advisor. Um, and so what differentiates those top programs from, from the non-top programs is, you know, I, honestly think that anyone with enough cash can buy yeah. Moscow, Ella, Winston, and Green and buy <laughs> Wooldridge and teach themselves that stuff, right? That, yeah. I think we all have kind of a comparable level of technique mm -hmm. when it comes to, after the first few years. Um, and what differentiates the programs in terms of quality is how much of that hidden curriculum are you kind of taught mm -hmm. by your professors, by your advisors. Yeah. And I wanted to demystify that because I figured... Mm -hmm. You know, it's so hard to figure that stuff out, mm -hmm. even if you come from a relatively good program that, you know, I, I want to level the playing field, make things easier for people who are not getting this from their advice, maybe because their advisor hasn't, you know, as, as hasn't been in grad school for 30 years, right? <laughs> so they're, they're, I mean, yeah. you know, uh, as you get older, you feel more and more kind of passe and, and like you, you're 
not forgetting things, but things like the world has moved on, right? Mm -hmm. And that was the goal of writing that book. And so I needed, you know, I, I re sorry for the long-winded answer. No, right? no, it's, you, you asked, how did this come about? Well, you know, I wrote that thing. Turns out there was a pandemic, needed something to do. Then I realized, right. oh my goodness, there's so many other things that I could say about this whole early career thing that I wish I'd had. And my, my right. main source of inspiration for this actually was um, William Thompson's book, A Guide for the Young Economist. And so when I started in grad school, someone said, and I really, I really wish I could remember who that person is because I would, I'm forever grateful to whoever said, read this book. And it's, you know, it's cheap, it's short, um, it tells you how to write referee reports, it tells you how to give presentations, it tells you how to write papers. But Thompson wrote in a world where theory was king, and that is no longer the case. What's yeah. theory? <laughs> That's a great question <laughs> on the podcast. <laughs> and so I, I realized that there was no such option for people who do right. empirical work, which is the vast majority of economists now. So obviously, a lot of what you say, I think, resonates with Alex and I because we <laughs> started a podcast during COVID about the yeah. same topic. <laughs> um, the other thing that I wanted to add to your comment, which which I agree, is is that it's not only that there's like a curriculum, but like a plurality of perspective on any even one particular thing. So like, what I think is super interesting and what I've been learning about, especially this process and the process of doing the podcast, is like on the topic of X three advisors may think very differently of what to do. And that doesn't make it that like one is right and the other one is not, but like that their experiences are guiding uh, uh, those advice that they're giving to those students. And I think, or at least in my opinion, it's important for a person to hear those three um, and then to assess where they fall given whatever priorities or things they have. Because it's not, right, it's not just like a, well, one thing that you need to know, but it's also, you didn't know about this perspective and you also didn't know about this other perspective, which is, I think, super interesting. Um, and I'm still learning about it too. I really agree with you about um, William Thompson's book. So I, I can, I remember who told me about the book and, and who gave me some advice. And, and I, my experience resonated a lot with yours where I was very happy to receive advice from uh, Justin Ross, who was a, a tenured professor here when I came on as an assistant professor, when I, I went to him, I was like, I don't know how to write a referee report. I was just asked to do this. I never had to do it in grad school other than like fake ones in class. And he gave me examples of, he, he's like, here are referee reports I wrote. Here's my letter to the editor. Also go read this book. And I also thought, Hey, that book was like really oriented for a theorist. Mm -hmm. So it was awesome. I learned things, but like a lot of it was like, here's how you talk about a proof or a lemma or something, mm -hmm. which is not super relevant for, for my life. Um, so thank you for providing, I mean, more than just an updated version of this book, but like, uh, you know, something that's pushing in that direction. So you don't have to be reliant on being lucky that Justin Ross has the office across the hall from you um, when, when you're asked to do stuff. Right. I mean, that was, you know, speaking of referee reports, right. My, uh, my advisor was editor of our field stop journal. And so I got a chance to write referee reports when I was a grad student. Wow. That is not the case for, for, there are many people who the first time they get asked, they're in their first or second year. Yeah. You know, we hear all those cases of uh, you know, those Twitter uh, feeds where it's like, oh, I'm on my 20th referee report this month. <laughs> it's like, well, okay, lucky you to be an econ celebrity, but most people <laughs> don't get asked, you know, that often. And so they don't get, they don't get to kind of that, get that kind of practice that mm -hmm. the people at top programs get again. To highlight your broader point. Uh, someone might be wondering themselves, like, why would you want to do a referee report? And of course, there's like a point of like declining benefit. But number one, in, just in my experience, it helped me write better papers. Mm, and number absolutely. two, it helped me write better responses 
to referees once you've had experience doing it on your own and then you figure out what the editors want it just kind of is slowly illuminating of the whole process um so if you don't start that until year one when sebastian already started talking about Mm -hmm. saying like that's when it's the most important to do your most important work uh you might be at a disadvantage and of course you can't control whether or not you're invited to do a report but understanding what makes a good report and things like Mm -hmm. that can help uh help with the whole and all these other ways beyond just refereeing and you You've just hit on something that just, I've been saying for years, which is one of the problems with the way we teach. So I, one, I have this, this old blog post titled read bad papers, and that's mm, exactly what you were saying. I love that. But the problem, right, is that you, you take a field course syllabus, let's take development because that's what I know best. Um, and you read papers by, you know, Mark Rosenzweig and Andrew Foster and Esther Duflo and Sima Chandran and David McKenzie and you never get to read bad papers because mm-hmm. what you read is papers by the top minds in the field that have been vetted through and through by reviewers at top journals. And, and so, you, if, you know, if you, the analogy I make in the book is if you want to study poverty, you have to sample rich people too, because if you mm-hmm. only sample <laughs> poor people, you're not going to learn anything about what makes them so. Or yeah, what that's straight up that. survivor bias, right? Conditional right. and then variable. Yeah. yeah, that's right. They, I, just to, just to finish the little thought that I, had when you guys were talking about the referee report and how it's also like accumulated into uh, uh, maybe one set of persons or people that are receiving a lot and, and not a lot. To me, it's hilarious that we have a distributional problem amongst economists. But aside from that, to me, that is like a symptom of this part of the hidden curriculum, right? Because the reason why one particular person is getting a ton, it's obviously because they're great, but like at the same time, because like that person, uh, uh, um, you know, there may be connections or whatever, or things like that, um, that others now may have. And to me, that's a symptom of this like stuff that we're also talking about. Okay. So you talked to us a little bit about kind of like what the book is, is it's covering. Um, I assume that the book you are writing it for young economists. Do you think more of grad students, young professionals, should senior people be reading this book? What do you think about that? Look, it's definitely written for early career professionals, early career researchers, both in academia and outside of it, who are involved in research, right? Um, Ideally, grad students, so that they don't have to learn it on the job like we did, right, Mm -hmm. when we started out. Um, But I I think senior people will find it interesting, if only to hear a perspective that's different from theirs, right? So... The book offers my point of view as to what has worked. Again, we were talking about survivor bias. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's stuff. That's my perspective. That's stuff that's worked for me. But it has worked for me. That's the only kind of experience I. And there is there are a couple of chapters where I actually that are actually more journalistic because I have less experience in those areas. Mm. So, for instance, um, when it comes to getting funding, I I'm not a major grants person. And so I've had to talk to colleagues who do a lot of who get a lot of grants to get their insights about getting funding. Um, but the, the vast majority of the book is my own perspective. But yes, it's mainly meant for early career folks. And then, you know, but I think senior people are going to find something interesting in there as well, if, mm-hmm. if only a perspective that they hadn't considered. Do you recommend being a book that you read as a book or more like a book that you consult like an encyclopedia? I think it could be both. I mean, it's so short. Um, mm-hmm. I just got the galley proofs yesterday. And without the index, it's about 188 pages. So it's a 200-page book, right? Mm-hmm. It's something you can read on a, on a two-hour flight, I think. Um, and, you know, like, if, if you're looking, <laughs> if you don't want to, uh, if you want to do, a, if you don't want to do a referee report on your flight, that's something nice to read on a flight <laughs> like that. And, and really, that's kind of my, my, uh, my hope for the book is that, you know, it ends up kind of like, 
um, you know, the, the spine all creased and stuff and pages kind of barked and mm -hmm. because people will have kind of looked at it over and over again for, mm. so I think you should, people should read it once and say, okay, this is where the information is, but it's absolutely meant to, what do you do when you get that reject and resubmit, mm -hmm. right? Which most people, a lot of people are not familiar with the existence of, mm -hmm. right? Much less with what do you do when you actually get one? That's a great thing to put in like like just as one random example to pick on because it's like exactly what you just said i had no idea when i was in grad school <clears throat> really even what a revise and resubmit was let alone mm. this other category so i think if i would have received a re reject and resubmit as my first uh interaction with a journal i would have been like darn stinks they didn't want it and then like thrown away an opportunity mm -hmm. right so yeah um, that, that's an excellent thing to put in there i thought you were going to say that you didn't know what r and r's are because you only get acceptances on the first try <laughs> that's, that's true exactly <laughs> but no but and then again like knowing that like an r and r is normal right so mm -hmm. i got my first set of referee reports and it was a rejection mm. but i remember being like so i was like hurt the mm. way it was written i was like i can't believe they were so mean to me and now <laughs> i look back and I've, i looked at them again i was like oh they were actually pretty polite i just <laughs> turns out wasn't very good at like hearing right. criticism Mm. You know, this is interesting because that's a conversation we had this weekend. Um, so at the journal, which I edit, we have this Slack channel for the four editors and uh, some of oh, the I would love to be, I would love to be a wall. <laughs> yeah, I would love for you not to read those things, <laughs> but, uh, um, and then the, the, the past, you know, editors are still there because they're still hanging on to some oh, manuscripts that are, they're kind of processing. And, um, we have two new editors and one of them said, Hey, this is my first R&R that I'm giving. How about this language? Is that okay? And and what the letter said was, well, I'm going to reject this version, but, and um, I, my view was, I, I don't want to give any hint that I'm rejecting a paper. So I say, well, you know, I'm happy to give you a chance at, at a revise and resubmit. Right. And then another editor chimed in and said, no, I like to kind of instill the fear of God into them. And so I tell them, I'm oh rejecting my gosh. <laughs> And so like the opinions vary widely as to what the right language is for those things. Yeah. I, I will say as an author with much less experience, I don't handle papers. I've never been an editor. Um, I refereed a paper recently. And then as a, a referee, I was CC'd on the decision. And the editor wrote like bad news or good news from this journal in the subject line. I was like, that's fantastic. Because normally I'm trying to like scroll through and like figure out if it's good or bad news. But they, they were like, it was like a clear right. indication before you even open the email of what to expect. I remember one of my advisors in grad school, I, I, you know, I got a decision email at some point when I was starting out and I forwarded it to him. Um, and, and he's the kind of guy where if you don't call him, if you don't actually show up at his office, he's not going to read stuff. And mm -hmm. he's a great guy has given me some of the best advice in my life because I have shown up to go solicit it. Mm. Uh, but I, so I call him up, I say, Hey, I just sent you an email, um, with a decision. I'd like to have you read on those comments. And he said on the phone, he said, just reading decision on your submission in your forwarded, like in the title of your forward just kind of made my heart skip a beat for a second because it's <laughs> it's those are such scary emails to yeah, get even totally. when they're a forward from somebody else yeah totally that's that's hilarious okay the, the the most important thing i've learned in this conversation is that there's a possibility that the editors have a slack channel and they're all talking uh, <laughs> so so i'm very happy about that So let's let's give our listeners maybe a little bit of a taste for some of the content. Is there a particular like topic within the book that maybe you'd like to talk a little bit about? Well, let me start by telling you what the book covers. So okay, chapter yeah. two is about writing papers. Chapter three is about giving talks. Chapter four is about navigating the peer review process. Chapter five is about getting funding. 
chapter six is about doing professional service and chapter seven mm-hmm. is about advising and mentoring. Mm-hmm. And so I could talk about any of those things at length. But the one thing I'd like to pick up on is um, what one of the reviewers for the book said would be kind of like one of the most useful chapters in the book is the one about doing professional service. Because we are, at the end of the day, we are kind of like a volunteer run organization. Yeah. Right? <laughs> that's true of our professional associations. That's true for those of us who work in academia anyway, of uh, it's not quite volunteer organization, but you know, the work is done by the people who show up. And we know mm-hmm. how that, you know, we know how that is in, in academia. We're kind of self-governed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say that's probably my favorite chapter because that's one of those things. If there is one thing where there's never a class in grad school about ever, it's mm-hmm. how, how do you decide how much service to do? What's actually valuable? Mm-hmm. What, you know, how do you approach this and that? And that's, I would say, I think is going to be one of the most useful contributions. Uh, I also really like the chapter on navigating the peer review process because, you know, as we were saying just now, um, Alex was saying, you know, I, when I started out, I had no idea what a reject and resubmit was, right? Mm-hmm. So the, I go into things like that. Well, how do you approach this? What does that actually mean? Can you write that a paper is under R&R if you get a reject and resubmit? Well, no, you can't, right? That's That's one of those things that I sometimes have to write in decision letters because some people get a reject and resubmit and they say, oh yeah, R&R. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. not quite the way this works. A different R. Right, <laughs> different R, very different R. Um, and so, but but to kind of come back to your question, Sebastian, I really like the, the chapter on doing professional service because it is one of the ways in which people can be successful in this profession. And it's, mm-hmm. it's unfortunately often a very hidden way, right? I mean, mm-hmm. no one gets credit outside their institution for being director of graduate studies. Um, mm-hmm you get very little credit outside of, you know, your own field for being a good reviewer, right? When you have kind of a a tenure and promotion review, yeah, it shows up in your CV. I have refereed for this and that journal. Mm -hmm. Um, And it it shows up when, you know, an editor that you've been a good reviewer for writes you a positive letter. But at the same time, you know, no one in your department will know, well, you've done this many for this journal and you were that great of a reviewer. So I, I think, you know, I think if everyone could could be like 10% more serviceable to their colleagues and either yeah. in the profession or in their department or in their college, I think the profession would be a much better place to be. So we we had a David Slutsky talking uh, about service and specifically about like, how do you pick the service that you think is best for you, which I think is super interesting. Um, the, other, the other thing that I was thinking when you mentioned this is, uh, I think one thing that I consider under service, but I feel like it's even less measurable than like referee reports it's like giving comments on people's papers um because that takes time and like sometimes i personally get into it and like even play with the data and whatever but like there's nothing in my cv that says that right i'm not like and help this one person with this other thing um but i'm like oh this is kind of weird because it's it's time that i spend it's time that i like spending it's helping my colleagues and and i get helped as well um, and, and no one is creating credit for it other than maybe acknowledgements and the footnotes, but like, I don't know, no one reads that. So, yeah, I actually discussed that, that bit of service in the, in the chapter where okay. I say like this, I call it friendly reviewing where, mm-hmm. you know, your friend from grad school writes and says, Hey, you know, can you provide me an, an outsider's perspective on this, um, on this paper? Mm-hmm. And that's something that almost, I would say everyone, if not almost everyone gets a chance to do. And. It is, it can, you know, I agree with you, Sebastian, that, you know, then you get very little credit for it. You get your name in a footnote somewhere mm-hmm. um, at the best, in, you know, in the best case. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but it is such an important bit and, it, and it's super useful, right? One, you're helping your friends or your mm -hmm. colleagues. And two, going back to uh, what we were saying earlier, it gets you to read papers that are not quite at that hyper polished, you know, near perfect level. Yes. And you get to learn a lot about how different people do different things or how do you know, how do they structure their paper differently? How do they explain something differently than you would? And I, I know that this is not an episode on refereeing, but I'd like just to talk about a, a benefit of that is I think sometimes junior colleagues, myself absolutely included, when they're doing a referee report, are like, what are all of my negative criticisms? But as soon as you're like, I'm going to email this to like a person I'm friends with, and I just want to like help them mm -hmm. improve the chance of getting it across the line, you're like what actually kind of matters here? And that's actually a good exercise for, I've found at least for doing referee reports too. I'm like, what? Does like this other stuff matter or is it just like my personal style preference? Yeah. One of the things I, I say, I think once or twice in the book is, look, there is no shortage of really smart people in this profession. If you can just be a little bit nicer and like more <laughs> constructive, that will differentiate you like, you know, all the way to Sunday. So That's... I think you're right, Alex, that, you know, doing this friendly reviewing is good training to kind of write down constructive comments and make constructive discussions at conferences. What's your sense on the classical advice? that is given to junior economists about like, put your head down, work and research and like service is your last priority. Do you, is it still, even though, yes, we should value service, you, you feel the same way or a little bit different than that? Look, you've got to deal with your institutional constraints, right? If you get told we are, you know, we are a small department, everyone has to sit on at least one or two committees. That's just the way the cookie crumbles. Mm -hmm. uh, and you, you, you know, for instance, if you're in a small liberal arts college, odds are you're going to have to do some, some service and committee work in the department before mm -hmm. you go up for tenure. In larger departments, I can imagine that, you know, you can afford the luxury of saying, well, let me get tenure. And then when I get there, I'll sit on, the, <laughs> on this and right. that. Um, so you have to work within those constraints. I think that's entirely right that, you know, I remember a, a piece of advice that was, you never hear that so-and-so got tenure at Harvard for their great teaching, right? Mm -hmm. So focus on research first and then, you know, make sure teaching is good enough. And, <laughs> you know, so I think most people, if they had to pick as kind of their two things to do out of three or four, sometimes in, I know that in schools of public health, for instance, or in ag econ departments, grantsmanship is, is mm -hmm, rewarded right. very often on almost on the same footing as service, teaching, research. Um, I mean, so sometimes in, above some of those, right? Depending on in some, school public yeah, health. in some institutions, certainly. Um, so if you had to pick two, right, I would say pick research first and foremost, then okay. do a good enough job in teaching. And then afterwards, you can focus on being excellent in service. One mm -hmm. of the pieces of, of, uh, of wisdom I've heard over the years is to get tenure, you need to be um, good or excellent in two out of three. To mm. become full professor, you need to be good or excellent in three out of three or four out of oh, four. Interesting. Right? interesting. And I think that goes really well with this also idea that like conditional and you started to care more about service too is, or even when you, when you, it's not your priority, choosing or trying to uh, see if you can choose things that you really enjoy doing just by the mere sense of process seems like really important. And that's something I, I always took service as given and not a choice variable. And in some institutions, it may not be a choice, but in some institutions, as you're building social capital with your associate deans or whatever, you can be like, hey, I'm interested in doing this. Um, if there's anything like that, that would be great. If not, that's cool. Uh, and I, that seems to be, could be really helpful for some people. Yeah, one, well, a rule of thumb, and it's very subjective that I give in, in the book is, 
if you're an assistant professor and you have to do service, focus on your department. When you're an associate, then you can expand it to doing some, you know, college or school level stuff. And then when you're a full professor, if you want to sit in the faculty senate, go nuts, right? Oh, and wow. you can do university-wide <laughs> service. Mm -hmm. uh, but even then, right, that's that's not hard and fast. My colleague, Jason Kerwin, for instance, he's an assistant professor. He, over and above the call of duty, he is on the faculty, I think he's on the university senate or the faculty consultative committee. And lo and behold, he's done a great job pushing mm. for our vac the vaccine mandate that we currently have at mm. the U. And so, you know, you take what you think you can you can handle, but you know, right. I, I try to offer a set of rules of thumb that you can apply for your own experience. That makes I mean, sense. I, I think that's great. And then I, what I like actually about that last example you gave is like there's, and I, I don't mean to belittle some like people's differences of opinion, but there is some service I think that is like legitimately important. And then there's other stuff that is like the committee meeting has to happen or something. But like if you're there or not, it maybe doesn't mm. matter. But like a COVID vaccine or some other thing that's maybe less extreme on your campus might actually be legitimately important or legitimately important to you. Um, so, so I don't know. I really like that example because that's, that's a nice thing that that person did right. to, to improve the world. Whereas like, sometimes I'm like, uh, does it really matter if I attended this meeting or not? <laughs> it maybe didn't. <laughs> that reminds me a story. I remember talking to a colleague who was at Oxford at the time and saying, yeah, I had looked at Oxford when I wanted to go to grad school, but then it got complicated. You have to be admitted by a college and then by mm. a PhD program. I'm like, how does the college system work? And and that person told me, I couldn't tell you. I When I joined Oxford, I went to one college faculty meeting and then they started talking about where to put the tent for the graduation ceremony. And I just <laughs> noped out of there and never went back. So if someone's interested in obtaining this book or learning more about these things, uh, where could they do so? And when could they do so? So you can pre-order the book now. The book is available from most booksellers. I have on my, my, my pinned tweet on my Twitter profile <laughs> is the link to the Amazon pre-order. I have had a couple questions from people who said, uh, how can I encourage other booksellers? And I tell them, uh, here's a link to the MIT Press webpage for the book. There are other options for pre-order. Um, and, you know, I, you know, I sent, I sent, I get all of my stuff from Amazon, but I understand that people might want to encourage a competition. I do uh, use bookshop.org. And so maybe you can potentially, hopefully also find it there as well. Every week, we like to ask our guests for a recommendation of the week. This could be anything, a podcast, a command, an app, a song, a quote, a book, a kitchen recipe, anything that improves your life in a smaller way. Mark, what is your recommendation of the week? So I'm glad you gave me some heads up on this because had you asked me this question cold, you would have had a 10-minute, you know, maybe not 10 <laughs> minutes, but a long silence. Yeah. And so I, I thought about it for a couple of days. Uh, I would like to recommend a cookbook that is Ooh. absolutely wonderful. It's called Silver Spoon. And it is the Bible of Italian cooking. It's what it's what Italian home chefs use to make dinner on a Wednesday night. Uh, and what I like about it is that one, it, it's um, it's relatively cheap. I think it's I think the edition that I just looked at on Amazon is forty dollars. Okay. Um, and what I like especially about it is that I would say most recipes, if not all of them, have fewer than ten ingredients. Um, mm, that's I'm fantastic. So, so, so when I make dinner at home, I like, obviously I like flavor like everybody else, but I also don't want to have to, so my wife, for instance, she is a big fan of Yoram Otolenghi's cookbooks. Yeah. And that guy rocks. 
the guy, yeah, <laughs> the guy absolutely rocks. But at the same time, you know, you have to have sumac berries and rose harissa. Tahini. Oh yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I am not that kind of cook, right? I'm more of a peasant cook. And so I like, <laughs> I like to use stuff that I have or stuff that I can go get in a pinch and won't have to plan a trip to the Mall of America to go get it. Right. And, right. and the silver spoon is fantastic for that because, as I said, most recipes have fewer than 10 ingredients. I would say most of them probably have seven or eight. Um, and it's, you know, 700 pages, each page, oh, wow. about three to five recipes. And there are some pictures, but it is absolutely fantastic. And if, if your conception of Italian food is, well, you know, it's fettuccine Alfredo and pizza, hmm. boy, are you in for a, a big surprise with that book? Because there are so many different things that you, you would never kind of think of as, oh, they eat, it's, you know, in different That's regions. Awesome. Yes, they eat that thing. So <laughs> I, I like that recommendation a lot. Cause I, I too, like, I like America's test kitchen, but at the same time, I'm like, I'm not, I don't want to spend nine hours making an apple pie. Um, but <laughs> I, Odalengi or however you pronounce his last name does have a really good cookbook called simple where he tones mm. it down a lot. And it's like, put the cauliflower in the oven, but blanch it first. Like, oh, <laughs> turns out that's great. You know? So, so there is, we don't need to pick on him. His stuff is great, but but I, right. I, I love I love this suggestion. Thank you. Now our listeners have a choice between buying Guinness Econometrics or Silver and Spoon, <laughs> you can, or you can do both. I think you need to do both. Yeah, right? I think you need to do both. Um, Alex, what is your recommendation of the week? So my recommendation of the week is uh, is quite simple. It's going to be an R command. Uh, it's called oh. Pac Man. So okay. in, in addition to having an awesome name, Pac Man, mm-hmm. uh, it's it's a package manager. So for those uh, of you that uh, you say though you might be used to installing user written packages use r there's just a lot more user written packages in r it can be kind of annoying to like download all of the packages and things i I think i've mentioned it on the podcast before when we went over workflow Mm -hmm. but what's nice about pac-man is if you put it at the top of your code and you just say like pac-man p load so package load Mm -hmm. uh it will load your package into memory if you don't have memory it'll download it Mm. And it, it can work with things on GitHub or CRAN. And it's just a kind of nice way to have replicable code. So if you email it to a co-author, uh, they'll make sure you, they have the same sort of set of packages installed and, and on. Excellent. You know, okay. can, I, can I just intervene here briefly? Yeah. This is what I love about Overleaf. With Overleaf, you have everything there. You don't mm. need to kind of install this stuff into your MCTEC. Anyway, great recommendation. Yeah, no, exactly. So like, that's a nice thing with Overleaf is you don't send it to like, you know, you don't have to install LaTeX on your computer that I mean, that's fantastic. And and I guess um, uh, an equivalent R thing of there is R studio cloud, right? I mean, I think mm. you have to like pay money for that. But but these are these sort of like, uh, online server things. I, I guess is that how Overleaf works? I guess it's like some server somewhere doing the work for you so. are, are fantastic. My recommendation that week is going to be a little bit more different and I think in tone with some of the stuff we were talking about before. So I saw somebody had a twin of this made me think of like, oh, I do this. Maybe I should recommend it. So I recommend thinking about maybe three, four, five, however many, uh, but not too many peers of uh, that you've met throughout the profession that you really vibe with and like um, are feel comfortable talking to a bunch of stuff, maybe in a conference and stuff like that, and create a Slack group with them. Uh, even with just three or four, I think Talking about all of this stuff, especially professional stuff, is just a good way to either learn from your peers or also get yourself out there. And the nice thing about uh, a space like that is because you might think, isn't this Twitter? Well, it's a lot easier and funner when it's a little bit more private because you're going to feel way more comfortable about sharing some stuff um, in in that setting or not. So 
uh, maybe create that on your own and maybe you have two, maybe you have one, but that's, that's been really helpful for me at least in this past few months. That's awesome. Our PhD students are all in a big Slack channel that we, uh, they know we're on it and then we're on it sometimes so they can ask us like quick little questions and stuff. And, uh, I, it's been shockingly great. Like I, I would have thought like, Oh, another like instant message thing is annoying, but it's fantastic. Mm -hmm. I think it's a great idea to have one for a PhD program. I mean, that's, that's something I'll ask our program to implement. There you go. Awesome. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for being here with us today. If people want to find more about you and your work, where should they go? Go to my website, markfbelmar.com. Great. That's all that we have for you folks today. Make sure you subscribe and leave us a review. And thank you for tuning in. Thank you, Mark. Thanks, everyone. Thank Thank you. Awesome. That was great. Thank you so much.